Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you, uh, live from our shelter in place here in the great Pacific Northwest. And a lot has happened over the weekend, in addition to the summer solstice, right? The longest day of the year was, I believe it was yesterday, perhaps the day before, but it was the summer solstice, the official beginning, astronomical beginning of summer. It also means the days are going to start getting shorter. It's interesting where my chair sits in our living room when we're watching TV or watching the news or whatever. The sun hits me at different places at different times, you know, over the last two months or so. It's, it's just fascinating to actually watch it move across the sky and attend to that. There's a lot going on. And one of the things that I wanted to point out is that the American media is gleefully reporting that only 6,200 people, this is according to the Tulsa Fire Department, showed up at Trump's 19,200-person arena. But they're saying that the reason why this happened was because thousands of teenagers, I mean, Fox is even, this apparently started with fans of Korean music, K-pop fans, over on TikTok. They were getting tickets to the Trump rally, and therefore only 6,200 people showed up. But no matter how many tickets teenagers got, and apparently there is this, there was this organized thing, and several hundred thousand tickets went out to people who clearly had no intention of ever showing up. But that didn't stop even one maggot from showing up Saturday night. Maggots are, you know, maggot Trump followers, M-A-G-A-T. Just like, you know, according to Republicans, it's the Democrat Party, right? It's the, the maggots. Anyway, there was no limit on the number of t- tickets available. If infinity is your number and you subtract a few hundred thousand from it, you still have infinity. This is basic math. I mean, the media is flunking basic math. And it's just not even remotely possible that the reason why only 6,200 people showed up was because, you know, teenagers got hundreds of thousands of tickets. Teenagers could have gotten six million tickets. Trump would have given them away. It doesn't matter. There was literally no limit. Nobody was told, sorry, they've burned through all the available tickets. What you're looking at is that Donald Trump with 80 million plus Twitter followers, millions, tens of millions of people on his email list, hundreds of millions of dollars in so-called earned media free coverage, With all of that, 
Trump and his campaign and this entire Republican machine were only able to get only able to find 6,200 people who were uninformed enough or gullible enough or dumb enough to show up at an indoor rally without masks on, jammed, you know, chock-a-block to yell and scream for hours. I mean, it's just like nationwide, all across the entire country, they were not just pitching this to people in Tulsa. And then when it became obvious in the hours leading up to this thing that they weren't going to get enough people to fill the stadium, the auditorium, they also weren't going to get anybody to fill the overflow venue that was outside. I mean, keep in mind, the campaign thought 60,000 people were going to show up. And they were going to show America. They were just going to overwhelm Tulsa. Nope. Sorry, 6,200. Nothing. Right? John Tesh. Got more people in that venue. John Tesh was trending over the weekend on Twitter because of that. So what this comes down to, what this tells us, is that there's no conceivable way if it was a fair fight this fall, given what's going on, that Donald Trump's going to win this election. He is down to only about a third of American voters who still believe his BS, his grift. So there's no way in a fair fight that he can win this election. So what's he going to do? He's going to use voter suppression. He's going to scream fraud when he loses. If he loses, he's going to try and fight it. He may be conspiring right now, and this is the theory, as those of you who are regular listeners to this program know, I, I, you know, I laid this out back in, what, January, February? that in the election of 1876, Sam Tilden, the Democrat, got more votes, both in the popular vote and he won the Electoral College over Rutherford B. Hayes. Yet Hayes, the Republican, ended up president. Well, why is that? Because a couple of states, four states, said we can't certify the vote. The Democrats in our legislature are saying one thing, the Republicans in our legislature are saying another thing, and we can't certify the vote. And because they couldn't certify the vote, it gets thrown to the House of Representatives, and in the House of Representatives, each state has one vote, and that vote is determined not by their congressional delegation, but by their legislature back home. And you've got more than 30 states that are controlled by Republicans. And all it takes is 26. So the 12th Amendment thing, you know, using corrupt Republican governors or some creative use of emergency powers. Trump is setting this thing up. He just tweeted this this morning. This is in all caps. Rigged 2020 election. Millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times. And back in April, he said, you get thousands and thousands of people sitting in someone's living room signing ballots all over the place. See, this is what's coming. And Dan Rather just tweeted out, you know, Trump claimed voter fraud in 2016 to explain his loss, although he didn't lose, so he kind of dropped that quickly. Although he's, he's saying that that's why he didn't lose the Electoral College. He's saying that's why he lost the popular vote. By the way, I'm going to be debating the Electoral College with a conservative scholar on the topic. Should be interesting. So Dan Rather is saying, get all his allies on record. This is a big story. Trump is 
trying to suppress the vote with his lies. Lawrence Tribe, constitutional law professor. Trump is telling us that he'll refuse to accept the loss this November as legitimate. We need to believe him and prepare to fight back if we're to preserve our democracy. Amen. Meanwhile, you know, Bolton's book says Trump begged President Xi of China to help him get reelected. Well, here we have this morning Bloomberg News, the headline, China warms to idea of four more years of Trump presidency. Interviews with nine current and former Chinese officials point to a shift in sentiment in favor of Donald Trump. The chief reason? A belief that the benefit of the erosion of America's post-war alliance network, that is, the erosion of our association with basically Europe, Western Europe, would outweigh any damage to China from trade disputes. Biden is seen as a traditional Democrat who will want to shore up the U.S.'s tattered multilateral relationships. Uh, one Chinese uh, trade negotiator said, if Biden is elected, I think this could be more dangerous for China because he will work with allies to target China, whereas Trump is destroying U.S. alliances. Four current officials echoed that sentiment, believing that a Trump victory could help Beijing by weakening America. <laughs> Get this? I mean, this is just incredible. So, I mean, this is just kind of the beginning of it, right? You know, what I was just ranting about. George W. Bush and Donald Trump both lost the popular vote. George Bush lost it by a half million votes. Donald Trump lost it by three million votes. Yet both these men, after having lost the election of 2000 and the election of 2016, ended up in the White House, even though a majority of Americans did not want them there. Similarly, in 2012, when Republicans took control of the U.S. House of Representatives, Democrats got 1.4 million votes nationwide for the House of Representatives, yet Republicans had a 33-seat majority. There are a bunch of states where the majority vote goes for the Democrats, and so you get a Democratic governor, Michigan, Kentucky, North Carolina, uh, but the legislature is still in Republican hands, even though the majority of the vote went for Democrats. Why? Because of gerrymandering. And now, according to reporting in The Guardian, corporations like Chevron and Citigroup are pouring money into Republican operations to not just maintain minority rule, but to expand minority rule. And billionaire-funded right-wing groups like FreedomWorks are reaching out to tens of millions of Americans, saying that allowing us to vote by mail during this pandemic would amount to voter fraud, which is this BS argument that they've used now for 30, 40 years to make it harder for people to vote. And this all at the same time that Bloomberg is reporting that China has decided they want Trump to stay in the White House. Russia wants Trump to stay in the White House. Donald Trump losing in poll after poll, but Republicans continue to run these states, even where Republicans got the smallest number of votes. And the Supreme Court has said, no, you don't have a constitutional right to vote. You know, if we don't get money out of our politics and if we don't start to uh, enforce the laws against foreign meddling in our elections, this could be the end of the American experiment in democracy. I don't think the stakes have ever been higher than this. China's saying, oh yeah, four more years? Yeah, just fine with us. 
And then, you know, over the weekend, Trump and Barr firing Jeffrey Berman, the lead prosecutor at the Southern District of New York. Now, keep in mind, Preet Bharara had been the prosecutor there. He was appointed by Obama. When Trump came in, he met with Preet Bharara. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing his last name. But he met with him, Trump met with him, and basically tried to get him to swear an oath of loyalty. Same thing he did with Jim Comey. And Preet said, no, 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 I'm going to be independent. And so Trump fired him. Not right there on the spot, but, you know, within a matter of weeks, Trump fired him and replaced him with a guy who worked on his presidential transition team, a guy who he knew, a guy who was a big Trump supporter, a guy who had put money into the Trump campaign. That was Jeffrey Berman. He was a Trumpista. And so Trump put him in as number one guy at the Southern District of New York. And then he turns out he was actually a good prosecutor. He went after Michael Cohen, a bunch of cases that really upset Donald Trump. And now they've fired Jeffrey Berman. And for the short term, he's being replaced by his assistant. But I'm telling you, they're going to fire her, too. It's just going to be a week or so. They're going to fire her because they're going to get Jay Clayton in there. And, you know, they very much want Jay Clayton in there. And the reason why they want Jay Clayton in there is because Jay Clayton is the former lawyer for Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, who are being investigated by the Southern District of New York. Pam and Russ Martins over at Wall Street on Parade, the headline, As Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan face criminal probes, Barr fires top prosecutor, tries to replace him with the bank's former lawyer, Jay Clayton. Now, it could be that. It could be that they're starting to get close to people in the Jeffrey Epstein investigation. Keep in mind, Jeffrey Epstein got his first job teaching young people when he was hired by Bill Barr's father back in the day. Jeffrey Epstein was good friends with Donald Trump. He was there at his marriage, I believe he was there at his marriage to Melania. There's all kinds of pictures of these guys being good buddies. It could have been that it's not just getting close to Trump. It could have been that it's getting close to Trump donors. God, it could have been anything. I mean, what do you think Jeffrey Berman was closing in on? Whatever it was, it was explosive, and, and it looks like Barr... Frankly, the clumsy way that Barr handled this causes me to think that it wasn't Donald Trump who panicked and said, fire Berman. It was Bill Barr who panicked and said, I'm going to fire Berman. But, you know, time will tell. But the graft, the grift, the corruption, it's just never ending. So let's talk about this. You know, why is the media saying... You know, well, Trump got punked by teenagers as if to say it's not true that Trump can only get 6,200 people. I mean, that's the real story here, is it not? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. That either the Trump followers have figured out the coronavirus is real or they're not buying his BS anymore. Which do you think it is? You're listening to Tom Hartman. So the last two Republican presidents of the United States were not elected by the majority of American people. 
George W. Bush lost by a half million votes. Donald Trump lost by three million votes, yet both went on to serve in the White House. The national popular vote movement is trying to fix that, to basically move the Electoral College out of the way so that we can have small-D democracy in America. Nationalpopularvote.com is their website. But there are those who are suggesting that would be a mistake, that uh, the Electoral College is how things should be. We should have uh, Republican presidents who are elected by minorities of Americans. Professor Robert M. Hardaway is with us. He's a professor of law at the University of Denver's Sturm College of Law, teaches evidence and civil procedure and election law. He's also the author of numerous law review articles and books, including his latest, Saving the Electoral College, Why the National Popular Vote Would Undermine Democracy. You can tweet him at Sturm, S-T-U-R-M-C-O-L. Uh, professor Hardaway, welcome to the program. Please make your case. Well, thank you very much. The MPBIC, the National Popular Interstate Compact, has some threshold issues. One, it assumes that the, uh, as you know, the, the compact would require states who enter into the compact to um, require that they uh, allocate their electoral votes based on who wins the popular vote. But of course, that is a, uh, an illusion. There is no such thing as a popular vote. Uh, when people go into the voting booth, they don't vote for, an, for a candidate. They vote for an elector who says, I may or may not vote for the person that you want me to vote for in the electoral college. And so uh, what happens when you have unpledged electors, uh, like you do in some states? Or what happens if people elect electors who say they're going to vote for Hillary, but then vote for a Republican instead? How do you count popular votes for a particular candidate? Of course, you, uh, it, it, it can't be done. So that's a threshold problem. And, of course, uh, like the French system, which is a popular vote system based on the Russian popular vote system, when you have that system, uh, at least you have a runoff. In 2017, uh, they elected, uh, France elected a candidate with only 23% of the vote in the first round. And uh, the, the, uh, the voters in that country were so outraged by this popular vote system that resulted in a candidate being elected with 23% of the vote that over a million of them cast blank ballots. So that's just a threshold uh, issue. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to try to get around the Constitution um, in, in a way. Um, but you really can't because, of course, a lot of people have forgotten what they learned in seventh grade, which is that you cannot abrogate the one, the one provision in the Constitution, which cannot be abrogated by the normal amendment process, is equal suffrage in the Senate. Every state gets two senators in the Senate, and that's the basis of the Electoral College. It is based on equal suffrage in the Senate, and that cannot be abrogated unless every state agrees. Okay. If I'm understanding your argument correctly, you're saying that, number one, there's the problem with faithless electors. Number two, that this would be an effort to get around the Constitution. And number three, popular votes are not popular in France. We elect every governor in the United States with a popular vote. You know, it's like I said, it's called democracy in a, in a republic. Setting aside for a moment the constitutional issue, unless that's your only argument, is there a reason why we should have a president serve as president who actually lost the national popular vote? 
Well, again, you forgot my fourth item there, which is there is no such thing. There is no such popular vote. But assuming you get around that problem, it was actually John F. Kennedy who, in 1956, in his famous speech, some people have forgotten it, defended the Electoral College. At that time, Republicans were convinced that the Electoral College favored Democrats, and the New York Times reported that actually Kennedy had been elected by the Electoral College but not by the popular vote, that Nixon had won the popular vote. And so it was, it was in 1956, though, it was Kennedy who said, you know, this Russian system, this so-called uh, popular vote election, would greatly increase the likelihood of a minority president. It would break down Wait the a second, You're calling this the Russian system, and yet this is when the Constitution was written outside of the president and outside of senators, I guess, at, at the federal level. But the system that was set up, the American system, was... When the majority of people vote for somebody, that's the person who serves. Why would you call that a Russian system? I don't, I, you know, I don't get how did democracy become the Russian system? I think the Russian system right now is if, you know, if you're in Vladimir Putin's pocket and you're, or his oligarchs, uh, you get to hold power. And if you're not, good luck, Charlie. Well, the way they got into that power was by using a so-called popular vote system in which you have multiple candidates that are vying. You do have a, a, a runoff. And in France, they have adopted that system. And you get somebody elected with as little as 23% of the vote. The MPBIC doesn't even provide for a runoff. You could have someone elected with 10% of the vote. But it was John F. Kennedy who the Republicans... So, were, so were, your, your final argument is that back in 1956, a Democrat spoke well of the Electoral College. Do I have that right? Not all of them, but the Republicans... What, what am I missing here, Professor Hardaway? I, you know, I'm arguing that democracy is a good thing that the that the majority that this is a a fundamental american value um that you know if you go back and you read the debates in madison's notes on the constitutional convention which i'm assuming you have i have in fact i wrote a book about it you get that the main reason they put the electoral college into place was because it took three days for a guy on horseback to get from washington dc to to southern georgia that they were concerned no. <laughs> that men of low character, to quote Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, that a man of low character might end up president because voters weren't close enough to that person to figure out if a scam artist was trying to worm his way into the White House. Um, I don't think that that's a consideration any longer. No, uh, I've heard that too. No, no. The real reason was because the nation was breaking apart. George Washington didn't even want to go to the Constitutional Convention. He said that the small states are are threatening to form their own little country because they're not going to be overwhelmed by the big states that are bullying them with the with the notion of a. Of a but of this a, is not Congress, 1787, sir. Well, We're no, talking about right now, 2020. Point. Why you have not answered my question? Why should Americans want to have a system? where the guy who gets the fewest votes wins and serves as president. Why? Because, because for the same reason that 2017 showed why that system is terrible, why you elect somebody with as little as 23% of the vote. It's not democratic, it's just the opposite, which is what JFK pointed out. And once he pointed it out, the Democrats backed off. The Democrats- Why should Americans want, I, why should Americans be happy with a person who loses an election being the one who serves in the White House? Well, I don't think people are unhappy just because JFK got elected in the Electoral College and Nixon was defeated. I don't think people- He won the popular vote, too. Nixon won the popular vote, yes. Nixon won the popular vote. I thought Kennedy won the popular vote in 1960. No. Oh, really? So we've got three presidents now. We've got three presidents who served as minority presidents. I don't, you know, I'm not happy about any of those then. It seems to me like this is supposed to be a functioning democracy. 
JFK answered your question, though. He said the direct election would increase the possibility of a minority president. The French learned that the hard way. It would break down the federal system under which the states entered the union, which provides a system of checks and balances that ensure in no area, and I underline area, or group shall obtain too much power. And he quoted Madison. So, so you're concerned that because Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump, we've got to check that Democratic Party power by they putting didn't. Trump into power, even though he got fewer votes. They didn't. There were no popular votes. They voted for electors, and many of those electors didn't even vote for the person that they were pledged to vote for. Professor Hardaway, I guarantee you 99.9% of Americans who voted for the name Hillary Clinton or the name Donald Trump did not realize they were voting for an elector. You know that. I know that. That's a... Um, but I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time. Uh, Professor Robert Hardaway. It's based on that illusion. I got it. Okay. Well, thanks for dropping by, sir. It's a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. One minutes past the hour, just to correct the record, I, you know, I hate it when people come on this program and say things that are, you know, in defense of their arguments that are simply not the case. John Kennedy won both the popular vote and the electoral vote. And the popular vote was very close. He won by 112,000 votes. But John Kennedy got 34,220,984 votes. So 34.2 million. And Richard Nixon got 34,108,157 votes, or 34.1 million. 
So Kennedy got 34.2 million, Nixon got 34.1 million, Kennedy won the popular vote, Kennedy won the electoral vote. Let's just put that on the record because, I mean, geez. So anyhow, Robin in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Robin, what's up? Well, you are talking about a very timely subject because Mm -hmm. one of the Supreme Court decisions that's going to be coming down in the next couple of weeks is on faithless electors, and it's just not getting enough uh, play in the press right now. You're right. And this is coming straight out of Colorado. Um, Our Attorney General, Phil Weiser, he's the one who's taking this all the way to the Supreme Court because we had one faithless elector during the last election. Colorado's a blue state now, and Colorado overwhelmingly voted for Hillary Clinton. We had one elector who refused to cast his vote for Hillary Clinton. I don't think he cast it for Trump, but he, you know, he voted for somebody else. Now, this Mm. is really scary because if this is allowed, if the Supreme Court allows this, then there's no point in any of us voting anymore because a very small people group of people of about maybe 500 across the country will be deciding who's going to be in the White House in the future. It's actually the opposite of that, Robin. Really? Okay. Yeah, let me let me explain why. Um, okay. We have never had a, a, a pre- first of all, the Electoral College only exists with regard to presidential elections. We have never had a president, uh, we have never had a situation where the outcome of the election turned on a faithless elector. There, you know, t- in a typical election, there's three or four, sometimes five or six faithless electors, well, maybe maybe even just one or two, but, you know, it's it, it, depending on the election. But they've, you know, they've happened throughout our history. Um, Mm -hmm. But what's really going on here is that the nationalpopularvote.com, this movement for national popular vote, um, is is in uh, in large part, and and nationalpopularvote.com, you can read the whole thing, by the way. And here's here's the problem. What What the states who have joined this compact are saying is that our electors, we will field electors who will vote for whoever wins the majority vote, regardless of which way our state goes, so that the majority vote will end up being the national vote. You know, in other words, whoever gets the most votes will become president of the United States. In order to order their electors to vote against who the majority of people in their state voted for, they're essentially ordering their, their electors to be faithless electors. So if the Supreme Court rules that faithless electors are something that is not allowed, in all probability, they're going to blow up the whole national popular vote thing. Now, I I realize there's an argument against that. In fact, there's a headline over at nationalpopularvote.com that says faithless elector issue does not affect operation of national popular vote. But that, (laughs) well, yeah, but see, that assumes that the Supreme Court is going to decide this, this case, this Colorado case on the, on these very, very narrow grounds. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if it becomes, you know, if if it's a much larger case, there's also a case out of uh, the state of Washington, uh, Chiafalo uh, versus state of Washington. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, has been argued before the uh, 10th circuit, uh, well, actually, the one, actually, the, your Colorado case was the one that was argued before the Tenth Circuit. But I'm of the, is your attorney general a, a Democrat or a Republican in Colorado? Democrat. Yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. Because um, my concern is that if the Supreme Court rules that 
electors may not choose that these that whatever the state you know however the state goes that's how it has to go is that that will eliminate the ability of the national popular vote movement to work you know we'll see i you know it's, it would have been a good question to ask the professor because he's uh, as much as we disagree on you know <laughs> <laughs> democracy. Um, mm. I think he knows his stuff, although he didn't know that John Kennedy actually won the popular vote in 1960. Um, but, you know, I, I guess we're just going to have to see, Robin. It's, it's, uh, do, you, do, you, do you have any, any in, inside information on when this decision may come down? All I know is that it's probably going to be, you know, in the next couple of weeks. I have, I have no idea. It's, um, it's not getting much uh, play in the news right now because right, right. now um, that's being trumped by some other issues going on like COVID and the Black Lives Matter, which are very important. But um, this, the decision that they hand down is going to be so important, and I, it makes me nervous. And thank you for educating me on this, but regardless, it still has me nervous. It's up to the individual states. You know, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania actually changed their state law so that the parties are no longer nominating the electors, that the candidate uh, nominates the electors. So, you know, that'll probably eliminate faithless electors. But we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, Robin, thanks for the call. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much time. I want to answer your try to answer your question as quickly as possible about the firing of uh, the Southern District of New York uh, attorney Berman. You know, this could be related to um, Pompeo's response to uh, the IG Linux. Remember, Pompeo did a you know a rather extraordinary thing by very publicly, you know, exposing himself to criticism over firing another IG. Right. This is the just for people who don't know what you're talking about, Dave, the IGs are the inspector generals, each department in in the executive branch, each cabinet officer or office has one. And the inspector generals are like uh, internal affairs to a police department. They're within the organization, but they investigate and keep clean the organization. And Pompeo fired his inspector general. I mean, this is just happening right across the board in Trump land. Back to you, Dave. Yes. And now let me say, you know, if I, if it was over a Saudi uh, arms deal. Okay. Now everyone's just going to say conventional wisdom is going to be like, that's ridiculous. We do arms sales all the time, but you have to look at the big picture. Look, uh, um, General um, Flynn, he lied to the FBI over something is absolutely ridiculous. He knew he was told to lie. Okay. He knew the call was being recorded. He knew it was the Kislyak. He's not that dumb. All right. He was told to lie. And the reason why is these guys come in with big, big agendas. And now I think the agenda is really to to shelve the concept of ill of liberal democracy. Just put it on a shelf. It's not related to American exceptionalism. It doesn't matter if we have to force allies into you know compulsory service. We need allies against Russia and China. This is why China. It's a no-brainer. Obviously, Trump is better for Beijing because Trump represents an illiberal ideology. Okay, and I'll come right to that. Absolutely. Point, Tom. And Beijing has concluded that, by the way. And, and, and uh, you know, the quote that I gave you this morning is just very straightforward saying, yeah, we, we want Trump because he's weakening America. He's weakening America's alliances. 
Yes, and here's my bottom line. This is Dave's bottom line, okay? So feel free to criticize it all you want. Look, the bottom line is we all go into government, and then we think, look, we can't have rule of the mob, all right? We cannot have mob rule. And this is where all these little drug deals, as Bolton said, come from, right? Because we all agree on that, regardless of our political affiliation. But I will tell you now, I don't think that's true anymore. I think the pendulum has swung. I think liberals take power in this coming election. And the rule of the mob argument comes up. I think it's bogus. I think liberals can't do anything harmful to the long term. Well, I don't know about all It's always been bogus. No, I mean, going back, John Adams made that argument, right? You know, he called average people the rabble. And at various times early and, and certainly during his presidency, you know, was very strongly opposed to the rabble, to the mob. Um, and this is the big argument that objectivists make, the Ayn Rand followers, is that, you know, democracy is mob rule and therefore it's a bad thing. We should have rule by, you know, an intellectual elite, the, the, the objectivists and the libertarians. You know, yeah, I get it. Dave, I got to move along, but you, you, did you make your point? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Patrick, you were at the rally? I was at the rally. I actually went to the Minneapolis rally, too, to, to photograph that. And it's a tale of two cities where Minneapolis was a grassroots effort, very positive, inclusive, uh, empowering, and, and calls to action about, you know, we need you to help make a bigger change in this, in this country. This was and, the Minneapolis uh, Trump rally. When was that? No, that was the, the, uh, the uh, uh, George Floyd, the, the, the protests and marches in, uh, oh. in Minneapolis. Yes. Okay. And then, and then it's. All right, I apologize, I didn't set that up right. But I, I, I'm driving back from the Tulsa rally in Trump land, and from Tulsa, and uh, it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, there were about four or five hundred people out there camping out a couple nights before. I got there Thursday night, and very little substance, no talk of policy, a lot of people showing up and just yelling Trump, 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 Trump four more years. Right. And uh, sometime around four o'clock on Saturday, I thought there was going to be this huge flood of people. And I just I'm kind of looking around and I said to somebody else, where where is everybody? And um, there were a handful of protesters there during the day, maybe like a dozen off to the side, very quietly holding Mm -hmm. signs. And then at about four o'clock or so, I'd say uh, the BLM uh, protesters showed up and there may have been two, maybe three hundred at the most. But they did not block any anybody from going in. You could have walked right in, gone to the checkpoint, and walked right into the, into the stadium or the arena and got a seat. It was uh, uh, there was very few people who showed up. Yeah, fascinating, Patrick. Thank you, thank you for the report. That's that's uh, that's fascinating. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hey, Tom. I I have a brilliant idea, as they say. I want to run this past you. So we talked. Oh, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago about what the Democrats should do is to, in, in, in Congress and at the federal level, should, should run on the idea of repealing the collection of the personal federal income tax. And I don't mean repealing the 16th Amendment, just leave the 16th Amendment alone. The 16th Amendment does not require the federal government to collect personal income tax. It simply allows the federal government. It's constitutional. So in this way, my idea would be that all taxes would be collected at the state level, or at least all, fe- all income taxes. The states, and the states would pay their taxes. The, the states would pay taxes to the federal government. You know, the state treasurer would pay 
the federal income tax. And here's how the income tax would be assigned. You take the federal budget and you divide it by 538. That's how many electors there are. And you would pay the sum, the, this, your share, depending on how many electors you have in your state. Not on your population, so you wouldn't be essentially breaking it down to averaging out the population, you know, your average income. So that means Wyoming's going to pay more proportionally than New York or California because the, because of the two and senators. They have, they have and they have, a gr- and they, have a, they have a greater proportion in electoral power, so they should. That's interesting. Why not? That's interesting. That's, that's the way to Yeah, no, a, a, a Wyoming voter has, what is it, 20, 24 times more, more power than a California voter or something like that? Of course, that's, in uh, the, it's, you know... It's, as a ratio, as a ratio, I figured out they have 5.2 electoral votes per million people. California has something like 1.4, and so the ratio is about 3.7. They have 3.7 right, so times more electoral times. power than a. Yeah, 3.7 times. So they have that much 3. more 7. power than a. Yeah, than a than a Californian. And by the way. Almost without exception, when you look at people who are in Congress, who are in the Senate and, and frequently in the White House, they started running you know, for city council. This is where they started out. So these are all really actually very important positions to pay attention to and really important reasons to vote, number one. And number two, there are there is some some pretty good polling showing that Texas may end up being a swing state. Texas may go for, for, for Joe Biden this time. So, uh, you know, those are your reasons to get out there and vote. Plus, it's just like this is what you do in a democracy. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's up? The right of all citizens to vote shall not be impeded nor denied. And I don't understand why that amendment has not been a hot topic because, you know, we uh, we don't have the right to vote because they didn't want to give women the right to vote when they wrote up the uh, Constitution because women well, were technically citizens. But what's that? Also, people right. of color, African Americans, and other and Native right. Americans. Right, they were citizens. Yes. They could be counted. They could be counted, but they had no rights at all. As a matter of fact, uh, there was an expatriation bill in uh, 1907. If a, a native-born or American woman who was a citizen married a citizen of another country, she automatically lost her citizenship, and. Mm. Uh, the only way to get it back is if her husband first applied and became a naturalized citizen, then she had to go through a naturalization uh, uh, process right. as well. But at that point in time, women still didn't have the vote. But in answer to your question, Bill, Democrats have been working since the 1970s to get this passed. I think it was in 73 when they passed the Motor Voter Act. Um, and the Motor Voter Act, the preamble to it says the right to vote is a right held by all American citizens or language to that effect. I'm, I may not be quoting it absolutely right. verbatim. And then that language is repeated in the body of the bill. So that is part of our law right now. The problem is that the Supreme Court has not recognized that. There's also three or four places in the Constitution where the phrase right to vote appears. And so, I, I you know, if the Supreme Court were to come out and say, yes, there is an absolute right to vote, then you'd have no problem. The problem is that in 2000, when George W. Bush uh, lost Florida to Al Gore, and we found this out a full year later, the month after 9-11, when this uh, consortium of newspapers, the Associated Press, the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Gannett, 
finally actually brought, you know, this giant truck with all the ballots from Florida up to New York and they counted them. It took them a whole year and they found that Al Gore actually won Florida. But in order to stop that count, you had the Brooks Brothers riot. You had, you know, a bunch of Republican members of Congress, particularly Tom DeLay, who took their staffs down to Florida. They pretended they were Floridians, pounded on the windows, said stop the vote. And then they sued in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court blocked the Supreme Court of Florida, which had said the entire state needs to be recounted, the U.S. Supreme Court blocked that, which is unheard of. It's a complete violation of the Tenth Amendment, which says that you know rights not given to the, to the, to the federal government devolved to the states. A complete violation of the Tenth Amendment. And that's why they said this, this doesn't apply to anything else. This is just uh, to put George Bush in the White House. But that was, you know, in that decision, Rehnquist literally said there is no right constitutional right to vote for president. We got to fix it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The problem is it takes a constitutional amendment, and there have only been 27 of those passed since the beginning. There's been over 29,000 attempts to amend the Constitution. So I get another email from FreedomWorks here. Don't let mail-in voting spoil the election. President Trump's cautionary tweet regarding the risk of voting by mail. By the way, Trump votes by mail. His kids vote by mail. His his press secretary voted by mail in 10 out of the last 11 elections. Uh, But anyhow, Donald Trump warning us about vote by mail was met immediately by so-called fact checks. Not only is there a wealth of supporting evidence from both sides of the aisle that mail-in voting is a risk to election security, really, but soon after Trump was fact-checked, a report surfaced of one form of mail-in vote fraud in West Virginia. Yeah, this was a Republican, uh, I think it was a mailman, who uh, took a couple of ballots and uh, was like uh, modifying them or throwing them away or whatever from people he thought were Democrats. Yeah, and he's going to jail. I mean, you know, this is so rare that the exceptions prove the rule that it's rare. Anyhow, he goes on. Mail-in voting has long been part of the left's wish list, and as usual, Democrats are not letting a good crisis go to waste. And uh, he's got this whole article that he wrote for the Washington Examiner. Yeah, the Republican, you know, about a quarter of Americans right now, long before the virus, about a quarter, 24% of Americans voted by mail last year, or in the last election. A quarter of us. The only allegation of fraud was one guy in North Carolina who was hired by a Republican running for for the state legislature who uh, was buying ballots from people and marking them Republican and, uh, and, and, and collecting ballots from Democrats and throwing them away. And he's and he's in jail. That was the only case. And that was like 20, 30 votes. I mean, if you want to run a large enough campaign on vote by mail to actually swing an election, it's going to take a huge organized effort. It's, it, it is so much more difficult than the sneaky stuff that Republicans are doing of saying, oh, we're only going to put three voting machines in this, in this uh, precinct so that people will have to wait in line for eight hours. Now, that actually makes the news. People waiting in line for eight hours, sometimes in the rain. Remember, remember those scenes from Ohio in 2004? And that's voter suppression. That's election fraud, not voter fraud, election fraud. That's when Republicans rig it 
so that it's hard to vote. Well, you, they can't do that with vote by mail. They're hysterical about this. They're frightened about it. They're freaked out about it. If they throw you off the voting rolls, which is their, their number two most effective strategy, their number one most effective strategy is to make people wait in line. Because particularly people who might vote Democratic, blue-collar workers, paid by the hour, if you stand in line for four hours, you, learn, you lose five hours worth of, worth of work time. You got, you know, assuming a half hour to get there and back and park and all that kind of stuff. So how much do you want to pay to vote? This is functionally a poll tax. You want to pay one hour of your time, of your, uh, you know, uh, of your paycheck? Two hours of your paycheck? Five hours of your paycheck? How about eight hours of your paycheck? How about a whole day of your paycheck? Would you pay that to vote? So that's their number one strategy. The number, number two strategy is they throw people off the voting rolls. The people don't realize that they're thrown off the voting rolls. Show up the precinct to vote, and the person says, well, I can't find your name, but here's a, here's a vote that. People vote the provisional ballot, turn it in, think they've voted. The provisional ballot never gets counted. Only get counted in red states if there's a lawsuit person goes on their merry way or even tells an exit pollster, yeah, I voted. I voted for Hillary Clinton, which is why you find that in Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Florida, for God's sake, the exit polls showed that Hillary Clinton won clearly large majorities. And yet the official tabulation, oh no, Donald Trump won. Well, that's because a lot of those people who voted for Hillary Clinton were given provisional ballots and their vote was never counted because they've been removed from the voting rolls. Well, with mail-in voting, if you know that you're supposed to get your ballot this week and it's all over the news and everybody's talking about it and your friends are saying, hey, I got my ballot. Uh, you know, I just voted, blah, blah, blah. And you're saying, I never got a ballot. You still have five, six, eight weeks until the election. You can call the Secretary of State's office and say, where the hell's my ballot? Oh, I'm George, I didn't see, you know, I didn't. You, you know, it looks like you got removed from the list. We thought you'd moved. Well, I'm still here. Okay, we'll put you back on and you get a ballot in the mail. So the two most effective, I wrote a whole book about this, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. The two most effective forms of voter suppression that the Republican Party has been relying on since the 1960s, but they put on steroids in 2000. Those two most effective forms of voter suppression don't work with vote by mail. Now, yes, with vote by mail, you know, if, if you've got you know, somebody who's effectively organizing a criminal activity in a probably, you know, typically in a poor neighborhood where people are willing to sell their ballots, you can have a problem. This happened in England, in, uh, in London, in a poor neighborhood. Somebody was buying ballots and filling them out. Yeah, that's possible. But that's nothing compared to throwing, you know, half a million people off the voting rolls just before the election, like Brian Kemp did in Georgia, before he went up against Stacey Abrams. That's a half a million friggin' people. Try going out and buying a half a million ballots. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's gonna be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ron in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind? 
Well, I've been uh, watching these uh, protests on TV, and I see a lot of young people out on the streets. And to your previous caller's point, the young people need to get registered and vote because, as you say, it is not just president, Congress, and Senate. It's on down ballot who your mayor of your town is or your city who your city council is, you know, they control the police departments. And to me, the young people need to get registered and let's have a big vote. Because I should say, that's what they need to control down on the lower end of the scale. What do you think? I am absolutely with you, Ron, and and you said it very well. Thank you very much for putting a punctuation mark, uh, an exclamation mark at the end of my comments. John in Seattle. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking the call. Love your show. Um, this weekend, my wife and I tuned in as we normally do at PBS NewsHour, and we were surprised to see that uh, in place of the PBS NewsHour, we were treated to Donald Trump's rally in Oklahoma. Uh, frankly, oh, I really? On PBS? Know. Yeah, 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 it was. Um, oh. Online, YouTube. Um I thought my wife had a very good idea because we were both just so upset with these, you know, phrases of Joe Biden answering to the, you know, lefty mob on and on. At any rate, my wife turned to me and she said, you know, we uh, we should we should um, we should have something in this in this country where you sign up, you throw your ring in the hat to be a candidate, uh, uh, to run for office. You should also have to make an oath, not not an oath of office that we've already seen as what good does it do, but we should have something where candidates pledge an oath to their people that they will not lie, that they will tell the truth. Now, I understand this gets a little tricky because sometimes numbers, you know, get clouded and, you know, memories and all that, but we have to have something to come back at these people who stand there and sell these bald-faced lies to us over and over again. And there's just nothing we can do but sit and whether or not you, you take it in, you believe it, you whatever. But it just feels like we need to do better. And with that... The comment, venue, John, in which, in which we... You know, the venue in which we ratify uh, that choice of whether we're going to accept a liar or not is the is the ballot box. I mean, you know, the the two the two options we have are the ballot box and the impeachment process. And we've seen as you know, even as you were talking about it this morning, it's a failing system. Yeah. <laughs> I, I well, and you want to have a system that whether it's failing or whether it's working that does basically the same thing regardless of party. And so if you were to put in, if you were to say Congress has the power to, without something like an impeachment process, to remove Donald Trump because he's lying, then would you have done the same thing for Republicans who wanted to remove Barack Obama because he said, if you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. You know, we have to be careful about this stuff. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Roger in Queens, New York. Hey, Roger, what's on your mind? 
The professor you had regarding the Electoral College, it seems his biggest argument was, and I'll agree with him, nobody should get in with 20% of the vote, 15%, 10%. Well, the answer is runoff, and from my understanding, that they have a way of voting, that there's automatic runoff. You don't have to do a second time. People choose their first choice, second choice, third choice. And I, I think anybody that should get in, get in with 50 percent. But that's, you know, that's still the popular vote. That's right. That's right. And if you've got five candidates, yeah, somebody could get in with 21 percent of the vote, but at least they got more than anybody else did. I mean, <laughs> that's how it works. And, uh, yeah, you know, France, because they have, a, you know, they, yeah, they, France evolved out of a parliamentary system. Uh, you know, where the party that got the most votes would appoint the prime minister. They decided, no, we want the people to have those votes. But there's all these political parties in France because they have a parliamentary system. You can't compare that to the United States. He was, uh, in my opinion, he was being just massively disingenuous. I agree. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. Good to hear from you. Hilda, what's up? Being as all the talk about the election being rigged or stolen or twisted or whatever they want to do with it, I want to know, is there anything being done? And if so, who's doing it to take care of it that this won't happen? The, whatever, they're making new ballots, mailing them out to people, the lines are six hours long. Is there anybody working on it to fix this? Yeah, the and whole Democratic crazy. Party and, and, and a number of allies of the Democratic Party. This election is going to be an absolute mess, Hilda. Uh, we've already seen that. We, we saw the preview of it in Georgia. And Brian Kemp will make sure that in November it's even worse. We, we saw this in Texas. Greg Abbott's going to make November even worse. Um, you know, we've seen the, the legislature of Wisconsin messing with this thing, forcing uh, voters to show up during an epidemic in order, or a pandemic in order to vote. Um, it, it is, it is going to be a disaster. Hopefully, out of that, there will be Democratic control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and we can actually pass some legislation that says, number one, that Americans have a right to vote, and therefore, because we have a right to vote, local governments, state governments, uh, or you know, even counties and whatnot, can't mess with that. They can't play these games. They can't shut down voting precincts. A lot of this was set up, you'll recall, by the, uh, by the Supreme Court in 2013 in the Shelby County decision where John Roberts said there's no more racism in America, so we're going to gut the Voting Rights Act. And, and that you know, brought us right to this moment. In fact, had John Roberts not done that, Donald Trump would not be president right now. So, uh, you know, it is a mess. It's going to be a mess this fall, I guarantee it. And that's why we need to, I mean, you know, and they're going to try and steal somewhere between 5 and 15% of the vote, which is why we need to show up in overwhelming numbers no matter what. But Hilda, you, you asked so the $64,000 question, and the answer is it's going to be a disaster. Hilda, thank you for the call. Helen in Fairmont, West Virginia. Hey, Helen, what's up? Well, I cannot stand Donald Trump. I'm like the John who has high blood pressure because I yeah. had a stroke. But I had a time I called whenever they were trying to impeach him. I kept calling and calling. Representative Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Joe Manchin, everyone begging him to, to vote for impeachment. Had they done well, that, we wouldn't. I know he did. But had they done that, we would not be in this mess we are now, I don't believe. 
Yep. And I've never been so dissatisfied with people in all my life because they know exactly what it is he is and they keep backing him up. And my dad always said, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. And he's, I don't know if that's an original story, quote from him. Or, oh, it's old. Abraham Lincoln used to say that. Well, well, my dad used to say it. Donald Trump's the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. But thank okay. you for Helen. taking my call. You're welcome. Thank you, Helen, for the call. Robert in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Robert, what's up? In order to be elected, such as voter suppression that Trump might do and all this, and China and Russia, etc., and kind of what Hilda said, but I was going to say, is or will the Democrats, you know, on our side, so to speak, be ready to successfully resist or actually fight off these anticipated legal efforts? And as a little follow-up, will Trump, uh, when he starts to cry foul, when he does lose, uh, will he be able to push it all the way to the Supreme Court and continue, you know, to spread his autocratic chaos across America? Well, those are the great questions. I mean, we don't know. Uh, it's I, I'm very concerned about the 12th Amendment scenario. Um, I you know, other people are concerned about, you know, his, his uh, refusing to leave office. Um, maybe he is feathering his nest. Um, uh, I understand uh, both his son and his wife have dual Slovenian citizenship. I don't mean I don't know if that means they're going to be out of this country as soon as he leaves the White House, or whether that's just hey, a lot of people have dual citizenship just for the hell of it. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if Trump is applying for it, but you know, are they are they planning yeah. on leaving the country if Trump loses? I I have no yeah. idea, uh, but I am very very concerned. Robert, thank you for the call and thanks for watching Free Speech TV. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Thanks so much for being with us today. As the days start getting shorter here as we move into summer, which for people like me who get up at five in the morning, it's going to sleep when it's still light out is, is tough. I guess, you know, it depends on where you are. The farther north you are, the, the more of a problem this is. The farther south you are, it doesn't make so much difference. But anyhow, we'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your end. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.